Well, good morning. Good to see everybody on this beautiful day. We had a wonderful night last night uh, around our fire pit. It got a little chilly, actually. So, um, but I'm not getting too excited about fall being right around the corner because I heard the long-range forecast is above normal temperatures, I think, through September. So, uh, so for you summer lovers, it looks like you got some more time uh, in which to enjoy the warm weather. Well, this morning uh, is kind of bittersweet. We're coming today to the end of our study in the book of Esther, and I have thoroughly enjoyed our time in, in this little book. I hope you have too. I hope you've been connected to a life group and been able to dig deeper into this uh, amazing uh, book of Scripture in the Old Testament that has so much to teach us um, today. For, for, I would say specifically in 2020, how apropos this book has been for us. And so if you've missed any of the previous messages, they're, they're online. You can go to our church website and you can uh, download them to listen to, or you can go to our Facebook page and you can actually watch the entire video. And given that usually I'm the one that's up here speaking most often, you may prefer the audio. So that's just, I'm just saying. This morning, uh, we're going to be looking at the last couple of chapters here in the book of Esther. And to kind of set the stage, I wanted to share a story, something that I read about a teacher who was trying to get her preschool class to understand the significance of Thanksgiving. And so uh, she thought it might be effective if she um, tried to emphasize the importance of the holiday by being playful with them and just kind of kind of chiding them a little bit and to see how they would respond. And so what she did was this. She said she started the class, and, and these are all preschool kids, mind you. She says, now, let me think. Thanksgiving, that's the day when... We get really excited about all the stuff that we have and all the stuff that we're going to get. More stuff than anybody else. In fact, is it, this is the day where we think more about ourselves than everybody else. And just at that time, the class erupted and said, no, no. Then one little guy in the middle of the room looked up and replied, that's not Thanksgiving, Miss Michelle. That's Christmas. <laughs> if you can get past the humor, uh, you can see that, though, even little kids understand that Thanksgiving isn't about getting stuff. It's about giving thanks for what we have. And granted, we're three months away from the celebration of Thanksgiving, but that doesn't mean we can't give thanks and praise right now. In fact, as believers... We should have a heart of gratitude that expresses praise and thanksgiving on a daily basis. And in, the problem is for me, and, and maybe it is for you, that I go a mile a minute, and it's hard for me to slow down enough to be able to take the time to reflect on all that God has done for me. And thus, as a result, my thanksgiving and praise for all of that rarely falls from my lips. And I think that's, that's a, a problem that's pervasive for many people. Maybe it, it's yours. 
but I need to be able to take time to remember what God has done for me. And if I just took the, the things that he has done this past year, it, it would take up the bulk of my day. If I go back all the way through my life, all the way to the day that Christ came into my life, and even before I can see his hand working in, in my life to bring me to himself, I'd have enough material to fill up an entire library. I, I want to have a heart that remembers and celebrates the faithfulness and the goodness of God in my life. I don't want to have an ungrateful heart, an apathetic heart. And I have to believe that that's what you want for yourself, that you want to have a heart that rejoices over the things that God has done for you and as children of God, I think it is absolutely essential that we be a people who remember and celebrate. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for our time here this morning. Lord, I thank you uh, for this wonderful little book that you've given to us to study and the truths and the principles that we've gleaned already. Lord, we, we will spend the rest of our life trying to implement trying to apply. And so we pray that you would bring these things to our remembrance, that as we think about the life of Esther, the life of Mordecai, that that would inspire us to live lives that are pleasing to you, that we too would have bold faith, that we would dare to risk it all for your glory and for the good of others. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would be our teacher here this morning as we open up your word, illuminate our minds, conform us to the image of Christ, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. We need to remember what God has done for us for one simple reason. We tend to forget. We tend to forget the things that God has done in our life, through our life, in the lives of those around us. And we need to celebrate because if we don't, there's another tendency. And that tendency is for us to take credit for that which God has done. So when you take time to, re to remember and to reflect upon the things that God has wrought in your life, it ought to produce great joy and thanksgiving. And it ends in celebration or, or worship because you acknowledge that there is nothing that you have received that you did not receive. It has all come from the hand of God. And He deserves our praise. And if we fail to celebrate over time, we will take the credit for it. We will think that we did it, that we pulled ourselves up by our bootstraps, straps, that we were able to, to make it through that trial or tribulation in our own strength, in our own wisdom. Remembrance and celebration is an act of worship. It's the antidote to arrogance and pride. And it keeps us from the sins of presumption and idolatry. So this morning, as we look at the last couple of chapters in Esther, 
I want to do something a little bit different. I want to point out three important facts here, and I want to remind you of five important truths that will encourage us and fortify us for whatever it is that lies ahead. Earlier, I started out talking about Thanksgiving. Well, the Jews actually have a holiday like our Thanksgiving, and it is a day in which they are reminded of God's deliverance in their life. It is a reminder of their deliverance from their enemies as well as the blessings of God in their particular situation, in the midst of their exile. Purim is a day of remembrance and celebration. It's a day of gladness in feasting and for sending gifts. But before they could celebrate, they had some unfinished business. And so what I'd like to do is I'd like to read the, the first 16 verses of chapter 9. I'm not going to put it up on the screen. I'll just ask that you'll follow along with me as I read. Or if you have your Bibles, you can follow along. By the way, if you'd like a Bible, we do have Bibles on the tables in the back. You can grab one, take it home. So chapter 9, starting in verse 1. It says, Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar... In the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them, for fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All of the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful." The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, and also killed Parshandatha, Delphon, and Espatha, and Poratha, and Adaliah, and Eridatha, and Parmashatta, and Aristai, and Eridai, and Vazdatha, and the ten sons of Haman, and the sons of Hamadatha, and the enemies of the Jews, but they laid no hands on the plunder. That very day, the number of those killed in Susa, the citadel, was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, in Susa, the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and also the 10 sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your wish? And it shall be granted you. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, if it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict, and let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. 
So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the 14th day of the month of Adar, and they killed 300 men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives, and they got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them, but they laid no hands on the plunder. I want to point out to you three important facts from what we've read here so far this morning. The first is that the Jews killed only those who attacked them in hate. If you remember back in Esther chapter 8 verse 11, we read about the decree that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. And then you turn to chapter 9, and if you look at verse 2, we read that the Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen upon all peoples. And then in verse 5, the Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. Hate is a powerful emotion. It, it, it can poison you. And verse 16 tells us that there were more than 75,000 people who planned and even attempted to carry out the first edict and to wipe out the Jews. And that, despite the second edict, that told the Jews that they could defend themselves. So they weren't coming against a group of helpless individuals, but a group that has had many months to prepare for the attack. And they came anyway. And that tells you how deep their hatred for the Jews ran. But not only did the Jews only attack those um, who hated them, who those who came to attack them. The, the second important fact here is that they killed only the men. You see that in verse 6, verse 12, verse 15. Now this doesn't mean that only the men hated the Jews. Most likely it's because women and children didn't take up arms against them. 75,000 people were killed in all of the provinces. And it's estimated that the population of the Persian Empire at that time was around 100 million people. 
In the city of Susa itself, it's estimated it's about 500,000 people, about a half a million people. And we read that 500 men in Susa were killed. Now, apparently there were some in the city that were still planning on killing the Jews. At least that's what most scholars think. So Esther sought another day to remove the threat and an additional 300 people were killed the next day. We also read that Haman's 10 sons were put to death. But what's interesting here, and a little bit surprising to us, but wouldn't have been unusual in Esther's day, is that even after they were dead, Esther goes to the king and says, "We um, we want to hang them. We want to put them on a pole. And you go, what? Why in the world would they want to do something like that? Well, like I mentioned, it's not an unusual practice, but basically what they wanted to do is they wanted to send a message. Not, not unlike when Haman took Mordecai through the streets and says, this is what the king will do for the one he wants to honor. Now it's like, this is what happens when you go against God. When you go against God's people. What goes around comes around. And fear struck everyone throughout the provinces. The fear of the Jews. The fear of Mordecai. And so this sent a very strong message to anyone who might want to harm the Jews. And you have to understand, Mordecai has been elevated basically to second in command. So you have a Jew as, in a sense, your vice president in Persia. You're going to think twice about going against his people. So they killed only the men. Third, they laid no hand on the plunder, even though they had the right to do so. This is very interesting because you have to go back to chapter 8, verse 11, where um, we, we read the decree that they had the right to plunder all those who would attack them. So you ask the question, why didn't they? Maybe it was an act of mercy. It could be. Paul tells us something similar in Romans chapter 12. He says this, Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Believe it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. It may have been an act of mercy. But I also think it may have been a test It may have been a test because three times that phrase is repeated word for word. They did not lay hands on the plunder. So what was the author saying? What was he trying to communicate? You have to remember who was the instigator here. Was it not Haman? And Haman was an Agagite. He was a descendant of Agag. And if you go back to 1 Samuel 15, if you recall, Saul, King Saul, was commanded by God 
to basically wipe out the entire people and not to take the plunder to which Saul disobeyed. And he is then rejected as king over Israel. And Samuel then has to come in and he hacks Agag to pieces. I think, and it's just my opinion here, but I think when, when he says three times that they laid no hands on the plunder, you have to think that the Jewish people are here in exile. <laughs> They've had an awful long time to think about why they're there the mistakes that they've made, the mistakes that their forefathers had made. And I think the attitude might be, hey, taking plunder was Saul's problem. It was Saul's downfall. It's not going to be ours. I don't, I don't know that for sure. But clearly, he's emphasizing it for a reason. So, as we summarize where we are right now, we see that the Jews are of one mind. They are unified by their faith, their intent on one purpose, their survival. They have grieved together. They have prayed together. They have planned and assembled together. And now they have fought together. And soon they will celebrate together. And as I was thinking about all of that, I, I had to ask the question, what about us? What about New Life Church? What about the church as a whole? Are we that unified? Do we have that same solidarity that the Jews had in Persia? You know, Jesus prayed for this very thing to be true of us. You know that? In John chapter 17, verse 11, listen to the words of Jesus. He says, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. That's powerful. We are the church. We are the body of Christ. We are the family of God. We have the Holy Spirit residing in us. We have every reason to be more loving, more hopeful, more joyful, more unified than even the Jews of Jesus' day. And shame on us if we're not. Because God has done everything that he could possibly do to call a people to himself and he has prayed for us specifically that we would be one even as he and his father are one. Now, before we look at the rest of the chapter, I want to spend just a few minutes reminding you of several truths that we've already learned from our time in the book of Esther. I'm going to give you five important truths here. The first is 
God's people will always have an enemy to overcome. We'll always have an enemy to overcome. Now that should not surprise us because the devil is hell-bent on our destruction. I'm sure you're familiar with verses like John 10.10, that the thief comes but to kill, to steal, and to destroy. Or 1 Peter 5.8, be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, lion, seeking someone to devour. Now think about this in our current crisis. Wherever and however this virus originated, make no mistake, Satan is using it to his advantage. There is nothing more than he would love to see than the church divided. To see believers at each other's throats. Believers, congregants questioning their leaders and causing division within the church. Nothing that he would love to see more than that. But we cannot afford to be ignorant of the enemy's schemes. We need to be wise as serpents. Our battle is not with Dr. Fauci or the governor or with those who wear masks or those who don't wear masks. Who's our, who, who is our enemy? Who, who is the one that, that we have to struggle against? Well, Paul tells us in Ephesians 6, for our struggle is not, not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That's where our battle lies. And we need to remember that. And the good news is, is even though we will always have an enemy, the evil one, and all of his minions to contend with, the second important truth that we need to keep in mind is God is in complete control. No matter what the enemy throws our way, God is in complete control. Job tells us this in Job 42, too, I know that you can do all things, that no plan of yours can be thwarted. The psalmist writes in Psalm 145, your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord upholds all those who fall and lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord watches over all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. See, God sees all. He knows all. He is omniscient. He is all-powerful. And he will repay and reward. Evil will be dealt with. And, and just that thought that, that God will deal with evil, that God will deal with wickedness, that there is a payday for the wicked, really highlights the foolishness of sin. Because as we're told in the book of Romans, the wages of sin is death. 
eternal separation from God. So in light of God's holiness, in light of his sovereignty and his justice, we're foolish to disobey God. We're foolish to, to, to stiff arm him and think that we can get away with it. Evil will be dealt with. And no matter, and this is something we, we need to remember, no matter how grim things may appear, in the end, God wins. And if God wins, we win. If we are in Christ. If he is in us and we are in him, when God wins, we win. Third important truth from our study is that God uses ordinary people to accomplish extraordinary things. God always provides a way of deliverance, and often he does through unlikely means. That's what Esther is all about. Who would have thought a young Jewish orphan living in exile would become queen of the mighty Persian empire? And that her guardian, Mordecai, would become second in command over 127 provinces. That's the stuff that only God can do. But we have to be willing, we have to be yielded to God for him to use, the, use us. Like Esther, we must dare to wait and to trust and to risk and in addition, this is something fascinating but to think about, but in addition to Esther saving the, the, the Jews from annihilation, apparently her influence went on and much further than we're led to believe in the book of Esther because her stepson, Artaxerxes, the son of Xerxes or Ahasuerus. We read in Ezra 7 that it was Artaxerxes who later allowed even more Jews to return to Judea from Persia, from captivity. And they returned under the leadership of Ezra and Nehemiah. So you just have to stop and think that the whole cultural landscape is changing. Esther has had this great influence on her husband, the king, but it didn't end there. And who knows where our influence will end. Whether you be a parent, a grandparent, or a single person yet to be married we have no idea how God will use our lives for his glory. But if we are just willing to say, Lord, here I am, use me. I am willing to trust. I am willing to risk. I'm willing to wait on you, but Lord, use me. He will, in fact, do so. The fourth truth is that God ultimately promises victory to those who persevere. The Jews prayed they prepared to defend themselves, and they had to assemble and fight. They could not be passive. And like Esther, we must have the same attitude, the, the same if I perish, I perish attitude. We have to be willing to roll up our sleeves, to pray, to fast, to fight, if we are to overcome 
if we are to persevere. Scripture tells us that each one of us will have to give an account for the life that we lived. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 5, Jesus says this, He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. And the fifth truth that I want to share with you is simply that God's people need time to reflect and celebrate. So let's continue reading in verse 17 and uh, following. So this was on the 13th day of the month of Adar and the, 13th, and the 14th day they rested and made a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th and rested on the 15th day making that a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who lived in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day for gladness and feasting, as a holiday, and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of, the, of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obligating them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar and also the 15th day of the same year by year as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday that they should make days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast purr, that is, cast lots, to crush and destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head, and that he and his son should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, they called these days Purim. After the term Pur. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter and what they had faced in this matter and of what happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offsprings and all who joined them that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written and at the time appointed every year. That these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation, in every clan, province, and city, and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse amongst the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail, and Mordecai the Jew, gave full written authority confirming the second letter about Purim. 
Letters were sent to all the Jews, to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus, in words of peace and truth, that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons, as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them, and as they had obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to their fasts and their lamenting. The command of Esther confirmed these practices of Purim, and it was recorded in writing. Purim is one of two Jewish festivals that are not commanded in the Old Testament. The other is a familiar one to you, and that is Hanukkah, which came into being during the time of the Maccabees. Purim, like Thanksgiving, is a time to remember and reflect upon the goodness and the faithfulness of God. It is a celebration of the Jews' deliverance which took place on the 14th and the 15th of Adar. If you look at verse 28, we read that these days should be remembered and observed in every generation by every family and in every province and in every city and these days of Purim should never cease to be celebrated by the Jews nor should the memory of them die out amongst their descendants. It's interesting that today as Jews continue to celebrate this holiday they do so in a very interesting fashion. First of all, the book of Esther is read and it's accompanied with a minor fast. Then there is the giving of gifts and a wonderful feast. But in some ways, Purim is like Halloween or Mardi Gras because children dress up in in costumes or they masquerade. Sometimes little boys dress up as the villain Haman. And the girls will dress up as Queen Esther. And it sounds like a really neat celebration. But brothers and sisters, ours is a greater celebration. I want to say that again. Ours is a greater celebration. Like the Jews, there was a decree against us. And the decree is simply this, that because of our sin, we must die. And it is irrevocable. It has to happen. God's justice, a sinner deserves death. Scripture tells us that God will by no means clear the guilty. He doesn't wake up one day and he says, you know, I'm in such a good mood, I'm just going to let everybody into my heaven. doesn't work that way. The wages of sin is death. And the punishment is hell for all of eternity. That is an irrevocable decree that we all are under. But there was a second decree, one born out of compassion, out of love, out of mercy. Jesus 
wasn't only willing to lay down his life for those that he loves, he actually did it. And he paid the ultimate price for our freedom. He wrote a new decree in his blood. It's called the New Covenant. And it supersedes the Old Covenant. And because of what he has done for us, we no longer have to fear the sting of death. We have been delivered. And we have been given the gift of eternal life. Let's conclude this book by just reading the last three verses here. King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea and all the acts of his power and might and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai to which the king advanced him. Are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus. And he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. Like Mordecai, each and every one of us who names the name of Christ should seek the welfare of one another and speak peace to all. Father, help us to remember and to celebrate all that you have done for us. May we be mindful of your mercy, your grace, and your great love for us. Open our eyes to see what you are doing in the here and the now both in our lives and in our world, that we might rejoice uh, in your goodness and in your faithfulness. Lord, we acknowledge that you have put us here for such a time as this. Guide us with your invisible and insurmountable and invincible hand. Lord Jesus, may we dare to risk it all for you, for your glory, and for the good of others. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, amen.